I'd like you to turn with me to two portions of the New Testament, if you can. The first is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the second is Philippians chapter 3. For those joining online or here for the first time, my name is Malcolm, and I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald Elam. Thanks for taking the time to invest in being here or joining us online. I pray that God will speak to you and encourage you as we continue our exploration of a most remarkable document, the Apostles' Creed. Tonight, we come to the penultimate visit to that creed when we explore what it means when Christians say we believe in the resurrection of the body. I'd like to read from Philippians chapter three, first of all, from verse seven. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me now turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to just read the first section of it, verses 1 down to 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to someone untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Now listen to verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life we only have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For us all, for us all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? We'll come to the rest of those verses in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a long chapter in a moment. But God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Anastasis is the word for resurrection in the New Testament. It's where the word or the name Anastasia or Tash comes from. If you know somebody by that name, they are called resurrection. Christians hold on to it at the center of our faith. It is quite literally the living heartbeat of faith. Without it, there is no faith. Without it, there is nothing to keep us going. There's nothing to hold on to. And yet so often we treat it glibly or lightly or rush over it or don't stop to think about it. The drumbeat that draws us into a new world is that we believe in the resurrection of the body. Like a call into the unknown. The declaration that this world is not all that there is. That there is more that keeps beating out on every page of the New Testament and in every aspect of Christ's life and ministry, we believe in the resurrection of the body. But what is it? What is it rooted in? What are the implications of it? And why does it matter? Those are the four simple questions. That was supposed to be slightly tongue-in-cheek that I want to try and answer with you this evening. What is it? What is it rooted in? What are the implications of it and why does it matter? What is it? What is it that we believe in? The resurrection of the body. I wonder how many resurrection stories you think there are from Genesis to Revelation. Listening to some Pentecostal preachers, you'd think there should be thousands. There are six in the entire Bible. There are six stories of resurrection. Do you know what they are? Can you think back to your Sunday school days or to your reading of scripture to work out what those stories of resurrection might be? The first is the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah's ministry. The second is the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4 under Elisha's ministry. The third is a man who is resurrected at the tomb of Elijah in 2 Kings 13. And the rest are all in the New Testament. Jesus' powerful, anointed, world-transforming ministry had three stories of resurrection in it. Isn't that interesting? Jairus' daughter, the, um, in Luke chapter 8, <clears throat> the widow of Nain's son, in Luke chapter 7, and Lazarus in John chapter 11, that Pastor Pip will be unpacking on Sunday morning with us. That's it. There aren't any other stories of resurrection in the Bible. And none of them wrote a book. None of them told us about heaven. None of them testified. None of them called a press conference. How inconsiderate of all of them. We're left with the mystery of what life looked like in death and not knowing. But all of these people were resurrected. And all of those resurrections, what do they share in common? They were all physical. There was an actual person in an actual set of circumstances who actually died. They were all specific. 
We know the names. We know the situations, the context, not always the names of the people involved. And they were all temporary. Because they all died. All of them, all six stories of resurrection as we describe them, point to the power of God in life over death. Which Pip will talk about more fully on Sunday morning. They're all symbols. They're all signs somehow of something more important. Something vital. And they're all more than what people sometimes think. They're all more than resuscitation. Nobody in those stories had fainted. Nobody looked like they were dead, but actually wasn't. In the words of the famous Monty Python sketch, if you don't mind me using that for a moment, they were dead. D-E-A-D, dead. Like the Canadian blue parrot. Most people that are under 50 do not even know what I'm talking about now. They were not resuscitations. They were not people who appeared dead. All six were dead. And they were brought back from death to life. They weren't resuscitations. They were not reincarnations. They weren't another spirit entering the body. They weren't somebody else coming into that body. Christians don't believe in reincarnation. We don't believe that our spirits can enter another body and we can come back as someone else. That's more to do with Eastern mysticism. It has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. And they were not rejuvenations. They weren't makeovers. They were all genuinely dead and genuinely brought back from death to life. But when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, we are saying more than that. We are pointing beyond that to a specific phenomenon. Yes, like those six stories, what we believe when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body is that we believe it is physical, it is actual, and it is specific. But we are also saying that we believe that it is eternal that it will never end. Turn with me in your Bibles to a portion of the Old Testament that is um, wonderfully mysterious and beautifully inspiring. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel's in the Old Testament. He was a prophet that was um, alive um, at the end of the, I always get these numbers wrong, I know the date, about 595, which is the 6th century BC, through to about 520, something like that. So 6th century prophet, taken from modern day um, Iran, uh, taken from modern day Jerusalem, or Israel to modern day Iran, where he was a captive for 70 years. He became a senior civil servant or politician and was given specific visions by God. Let's read Daniel chapter 12 for a moment. Just the first few verses. This is Daniel seeing the time of the end, seeing the end of the world, which I'm going to be preaching on in the autumn. At that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people shall arise. There shall be a time of anguish such as has never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep the word secret and the book sealed until the time at the end. Many shall be running back and forth and evil shall increase. There will be a time at the end, Daniel says, that God has shown him where the dead will rise to everlasting something. Everlasting life or everlasting contempt. But they will rise out of the earth 
to an everlasting condition. That's one of the things that is fundamentally different about what we say when we say we believe in the resurrection of the dead or the resurrection of the body. We're not simply saying that we believe God brings dead people back to life. We do believe that, but that's a different subject that Pip will preach on on Sunday morning. And it's a subject that brings great hope and great comfort and great strength. What we mean when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body is that there will be a moment in the future when those who are dead will live again and they will never die. That is very important. And this will include Everyone, everyone, those who have known God and those who have not known him. Turn with me to another couple of passages of scripture for a moment. Revelation, go to the very end of the Bible. This is what John sees at the end of time, chapter 21. You're going to need to keep your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at quite a few passages of Scripture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And when I get to preaching that, I'll explain to you why I don't think that is the ocean. I think that is a big bowl outside the temple that is signified to sin. Um, If those of you that are interested, I'll tell you now because you're all looking at me. Many people read Revelation 21 and say, I'm going to miss the sea in heaven. Will there be no water in heaven? Of course there will be water in heaven. In the Old Testament, there is a, a, in the building of the temple, remember what John is saying here is a new heaven and a new earth. And in the Old Testament, there is a, a, in the, outside the temple, there's a massive basin that is to be placed uh, made of bronze. And it has... Um, huge ornate legs at either side and it's full of water I mean it's enormous but it's there for anybody who comes to the temple to wash themselves and purify themselves so that they can enter the temple and it is called the sea that's the name of the big basin because it's so big it symbolizes a sea What John sees here is a new heaven and a new earth where heaven is, a temple is different, it's completely transformed and there is no need to cleanse yourself from sin because sin has been eradicated, it's been done away with and there is no sea. That's quite good news if you like the water. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the last first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying see the home of God is amongst mortals he will dwell with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes death will be no more mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. When we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, we believe in a God who will make all things new. You can pick that up in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, if you want to bounce back to it with me for a moment. Can't hear any Bibles, but I'm sure you're moving them. Verse 17 talking about what God wants to do. This is 750 years or so before Jesus was born. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. Their former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. When we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, we believe in a God who will make all things new including the very earth that you're standing on. Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 8. Paul trying to encourage the church in Rome to live in the power of the Spirit and remember God's grace and power at work in their lives says this in Romans chapter 8 verses 22 to 24. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation... 
But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, this resurrection of the body, this moment that I want to talk to you about this evening, is rooted in in something to do with Jesus. Something to do with what he has done and what he has secured. And it is so important that the very creation, the very atoms of the earth groan and yearn for it. Every part of the creation yearns for this moment, yearns for this transformation. And it will be sudden and it will be instantaneous and it will be complete. Turn with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Are you keeping up? You're a good lot. One Thessalonians chapter four, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. That's really strong language for Paul. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command and with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul is describing a moment when resurrection life breaks out and everybody's impacted. Everybody's touched by it. It's a moment that is utterly, utterly instantaneous and transformational. Go back to the passage that we read at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 15. I want to turn your attention to the end of it. Paul is drawing all of his arguments to a close. And here's what he says in verse 50 down to verse 58. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, now this is going to get complicated, so just listen to the words carefully. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, sounds like what Paul describes in Thessalonians, isn't it? For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Oh, it's sudden, it's instantaneous, it's universal, it's eternal, it happens in a moment, and it is inspirational. And it's a specific moment that you would probably miss that is described in Philippians chapter three, the passage that I read, the second passage that I read at the beginning of our Bible study tonight. I want you to turn back to it with me for a moment because I am very excited about this. You've heard me say before that the New Testament contains a number of words that only appear there once. They're called hapax legomenon, written only once is what that means. And there's one in this passage, Philippians chapter 3. From verse 7 down to 11, I read to you earlier on. I want to pick up verse 10 to 11. Paul's encouraging the Philippians about what he believes about himself and his future and his life and everything else. And he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's anastasis. That's the word we've talked about so far. And the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That word there, resurrection, is a unique word in the New Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere else. It isn't anastasis. It's Now you're going to say, did you build me up for this? It's not anastasis. It's ex-anastasis. And it's referring, the best way of uh, translating this into English, it's really hard, but the, the best way of translating this into English is this, the great dislodgement. The moment in time and history when there, do you know what a dislodgement is? If you've ever had your foot stuck on a rock and you pull at it and pull at it and pull at it until eventually it comes out, you've just dislodged it. Paul's talking in Philippians chapter 3, verse 11, which we miss in English in a specific moment known as the great displacement, the great dislodgement, the great change, the great transformation, the great moment, the resurrection. That's what we mean when we as Christians say we believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe in a moment in time and history, a rising up from the earth, a resurrection from the dead that will never, ever, 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 ever be stopped, that cannot be broken, and that will affect everything on planet earth in which those who know Christ will be given new bodies forever to reign with him. Great news. And those who do not will rise to everlasting darkness. Paul says, I am consumed by this idea that the whole earth is going to be changed by God through Jesus Christ. There's going to be a moment when God does something profoundly in us and it's called the resurrection. What is it rooted in? What's the basis of his argument? I'm going to have to take my coat off. I'm too hot. That's very rare. What is the strength? What is the logicality of why he says that? To understand that, you need to come to a couple of places with me. First of all, John chapter 20. You won't be surprised that I bring you here if you listen to my preaching for any length of time. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple and the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He, went down, he bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. 
Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying. One at the head and the other at the feet and they said to her woman why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she and said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said those things to her. That's the resurrection moment that changes the universe. This is the moment when death springs out, life springs out of death and light springs out of darkness and hope springs out of despair. And you live in it now. I live in it now. Every Christian who has been born again since this moment lives in the power of this moment. This is the moment when life begins to seep across planet earth and nothing can stop it. It is unstoppable resurrection life that will transform every flower, that will transform every atom, that will change every part of the created universe begins here in this garden just outside Jerusalem three days after Jesus had died. This is the resurrection. This is the moment that the resurrection of the dead and the future is rooted in. How do I know that? Well, you need to return with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to the passage that I read at the beginning. Because in it, what you read of is, in verses 1 to 11, the resurrection of Christ. Paul makes it very clear. I've already read it to you. He said, this is what I'm telling you is of primary importance. Number one, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Number two, that he was buried according to the Scriptures. Number three, that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and to the other disciples, to 500 other people and then to me. This is the resurrection moment. This is the important thing. Paul is rooting everything else that we're going to explore in 1 Corinthians 15. In this reality, Jesus is not dead anymore. But not only in the idea that Jesus is not dead anymore, that Jesus is never going to die. You're never going to attend his funeral. You're never going to have to say goodbye to him. You're never going to have to walk away from him. You're never going to be brokenhearted because his life has ended. He has changed everything by being resurrected. And our resurrection is rooted in his resurrection. When Christ was risen from the dead, he was not returning to an ordinary earthly life, as was the case with the six resurrections that I mentioned at the beginning of our Bible study. We know that because he had a different body. We know that because he had a different appearance. We know that because he, he could walk through walls and there were lots of different things about him. He was given a new resurrection body, a new existence, a new form connected to the old one, but not the same. His resurrection from the dead wasn't just a miraculous event because the people who had been raised from the dead and the rest of the Bible died again. This time, Jesus' power will never wane. His resurrection is essentially different to anything else that had taken place up to that point or has taken place since. This is the only event of its kind that has ever taken place in history. But it's not the only event that will, will ever take place. It is the only event that has taken place that guarantees an event like it that you will experience and I will experience at some point in our lives. In his risen body, Christ passes from the state of death to another life beyond time and space. 
Filled with the consuming power of the Holy Spirit, he now lives in a glorious state that will never be altered. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47, describes that state to us. So go back to 1 Corinthians 15 for a minute. The first man, that's Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Christ is the man of heaven. The Bible uses different words to describe that, but that's really important. So here's what I want to do now. I want to focus with you in on 1 Corinthians 15 for a few moments. I've already explained the resurrection itself, the physical, actual resurrection of Jesus from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. In verses 12 to 34, Paul takes Jesus' resurrection and talks about the resurrection of the dead in general. And then he later will talk about the resurrection of the body. I've read to you verses 12 through to 30, but I want to stop and read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 to you now, starting at verse 30, because that's where we stopped. And we're going to read to verse 50. Why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour, Paul says. This is him about his preaching. I die every day. That is as certain, brothers and sisters, as my boasting of you, a boast that I make in Christ Jesus our Lord. If with merely human hopes I have fought with wild animals at Ephesus, what would I have gained by it? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Come to a sober and right mind and sin no more, for some people have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives us a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there was one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. Indeed, stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man in dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. These are remarkable words. If Paul roots the resurrection of the body in Jesus' resurrection in verses 1 to 11, then in verses 12 to 34, he wants to talk about the resurrection of the dead, full stop. And here's the kind of flow of his arguments. From verses 12 to 19, he kind of makes a circular argument. If you've ever heard a lawyer arguing, you will identify with it because it's really frustrating. He says, if Christ is raised, then there is a resurrection. And if there is a resurrection, then we will be raised too. That's his argument. But he says, if Christ isn't raised, then there is no resurrection. And there's no point to faith. And then he says, but Christ has been raised. So if Christ has been raised, there is a resurrection. That's going to impact you. And there is a point to faith. That's the end of that argument. If Christ has been raised, then there is a resurrection. And if there is a resurrection, then that impacts you. 
And you need to think about that. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then there isn't a resurrection and you've nothing to worry about. Which is why resurrection of Jesus sits at the heart of Christian faith. I'm going to say something to you that you may not have heard me say before, but I absolutely, absolutely believe this. If there has been no resurrection, not only would I stop being a Christian, I would become Christianity's biggest opponent. I would sell everything I had and I would dissuade every person that I ever met not to follow Jesus because I would say he was a liar and a charlatan and a cheat. That's the strength of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, but I know Christ has been raised. And because he has been raised, everything is changed. This is not about a feeling. It's not about an idea. And it's not about a theory. My life is transformed because Jesus Christ is alive. And because he has been physically resurrected, everything in the universe is impacted and every priority in my life is transformed and changed. That's his argument from verses 12 through to 19. And he goes on to say this, Christ is raised. In verse 20 and verse 23, he uses a Greek word, aparche, which, which is translated in English as first fruits. Christ is raised as the first fruits. Now, there's a phrase that is similar to that that is used, a different word, but the same idea that is used in 1 Corinthians 15, twice in verses 21 to 22, and in verses 45 to 49, and in Romans chapter 5, in verses 12 to 15 and 17. There are two images, or three, that Paul uses to help us understand what's going on here. The first is this word, first fruits. The second is when he compares Jesus to Adam. And he has two ways of comparing Jesus to Adam. The first way is he describes Adam as the first Adam and Jesus as the second Adam. The second way that he uses the Adam idea is he refers to Adam as the man of earth and Jesus as the man of heaven or Jesus as the last Adam. Those are important ideas. First fruits, second Adam, last Adam, Man of heaven. In other words, there is something going on in the resurrection of Jesus which is so significant that it is not just about him, but out of it flows every other hope of a believer or of a different world. Christ is the first fruits. Because he has been raised up, there is certainty about us being raised up. We might have questions about what that will look like and how it will happen and where we will be, and how we will feel, and what other people will see. I don't have answers to many of those questions, although I look forward to exploring them with you in the autumn. But because Christ has already done it, you will inevitably go through this. This is a process that every human being will go through. Just as surely as if Christ doesn't return, you will die. You will also be resurrected. I don't, I've never understood why Christians always say there are two things that are certain, um, death and taxes. I want to say, no, there are three. Death, taxes, and resurrection. And I think I know which one I prefer. First fruits, the first Adam and the second Adam. And Paul uses this argument of the first Adam and the second Adam to help us understand something. To understand that through the first Adam, death comes But through the second Adam, resurrection and life comes. Verses 20 to 22. Read it with me again. Are you enjoying this? Good. (laughs) But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death death came through a human being, the resurrection of of the dead has also come through a human being, Jesus. For all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Now what? Stop for a minute. I've often thought about that verse and I think there are several different ways of taking it. Of course, it is the hope of all Christians that if all die in Christ, all will be made alive. And if all die in Adam, all will be made alive in Christ. But I think there's something more profound and challenging going on in verse 23. Because all have life as a result of being human, all will have eternal life, either good or bad, as a result of Christ. Now, Paul goes on to specifically talk 
about those who have died in Christ and will experience union with him. But nevertheless, there's an argument here for what is known as the eternal conscious awareness of those who are lost. Something that we should take very seriously. Christ is described as the first in verse 23. And those who belong to him will come after him. Then we're told in verse 24 that after that will come death. But in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15, we are told this, that death will ultimately be defeated. In Revelation chapter 19, death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. I have said this to you many times. I don't want to labor it because people pick it up on Sunday. Death doesn't get the last word in your life. It doesn't get the last word in your loved one's life. It doesn't get the last word in any believer's life. Life gets the last word in life, not death. And we end up being so fixated about being afraid of dying or afraid of going through it that we're not able to face the consequence of the reality that actually after death there is life. We believe in life after death. Resurrection life is unchangeable, unalterable. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but I just want to note it as present. And you can scratch your head with me. I have some answers, but not for tonight's Bible study. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will those people who have received baptism on behalf of the dead do? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? To be continued at some point in the future. (laughs) But let me say this to you. That's why Mormons do their family trees. And get baptized for dead generations. If you're a Mormon, you can get baptized five or six hundred times. That's why the Mormons have the best genealogical study centers in the world. Because they believe that they can be baptized for people in their families that have died already. And when they're baptized, dead people are transferred from lostness to heaven. That's not what we believe, and I don't have the time to preach on this tonight. I do have some answers, but it takes longer than a few minutes in another important Bible study. Now, from verses 35 to 58, having established that the dead will be resurrected because Jesus has been resurrected, Paul then turns his attention to what that will look like, the resurrection of the body. And I want you to note various things. First of all, it is unique. In verse 35 and following, he says there's a seed, and A seed doesn't produce the same thing that it looks like, but for a seed to produce life, it has to die. So for you to produce life, you've got to die. Your body is the seed. C.S. Lewis described it as the winter coat that you no longer require. I nearly rang Malcolm McCulley. He's here tonight to ask him to bring a couple of bags of seeds or something with me. Have you ever seen a tomato seed? They're not very pretty, but my goodness, tomatoes are amazing. Well, I think they're amazing. My wife's allergic to them, but that's another story. (laughs) Sunflower seeds, pumpkin seeds, rose seeds, apple seeds. Don't eat them. They've got cyanide in them. But you could never guess. Did I just give some of you strategies? (laughs) (laughs) You would never guess that the seed that you are holding could produce something as remarkable as the plant that comes out of it. There is, in your head, you couldn't make it up. And Paul says, your body is like the dry, dusty, dead seed. And when it's planted in the earth, you are planting something that will give way, whether it's cremated or buried, I don't think makes any difference whatsoever. But when it is planted in the earth, it will give way to something spectacular and unique. There is a direct connection between our physical self now and our resurrected bodies. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it looks like. I've put an order in for a a body like Brad Pitt. (laughs) I've no idea what it will look like. But there is a physical connectedness between the seed of our present body and our future states, and it is unique. I am convinced that there will be some kind of recognition in heaven of those who have died, that we'll not simply be disembodied spirits floating around in Casper-like gowns, but that somehow there'll be a recognition. That's not my greatest reward in heaven, by the way. I'll come to that later on. 
But there is a, a connection between our physical state now and our resurrected body. Paul makes that clear in verse 35 and following. And he talks about our bodies, our physicality being in the hands of God. Look at verse 38. I could do with about six weeks to do this study with you. He takes this bare seed, verse 38, and God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. A good argument against pure evolutionary theory, by the way, and Chris Shaw said amen, but missed the opportunity. (laughs) This seed that we have is in the hands of God and will give way to something glorious. Look at verse 40 for a minute. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly body is one thing and that of the earthly is another. And I love this powerful list from verse 42 on. Paul uses deliberately short Greek sentences. It's a moment of transformation from perishable to imperishable. Verse 42, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power. It's sown physical, it's raised spiritual. There's this transformation. And it, 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 it feels to me like, like life bursting out of a carcass, like, like an old seed breaking apart and, and the most unimaginable life and beauty and color and hopefulness bursting out of it. Now, what does that mean? What does that do to your spirit? First of all, if you are getting older, do not view your life as getting weaker View it as a a way in which you are day by day becoming more translucent. Something is breaking out of your old self. Something beautiful and amazing and radiant is, is breaking out of the old physical shell that used to be your body. And if you are young or if you've lost someone who is young, that seed, pure and beautiful, has yielded something remarkable, spectacular, incredible, life-giving. And do you notice how, po- how powerfully and importantly Paul makes the argument about how this happens? He talks about physical giving way to spiritual. Why does he emphasize that so much? Because at the time of his writing, and still today, there are an awful lot of people that think the spiritual is more important than the physical. That somehow we are What's most important about us is our spirits, but Jewish people don't get that. The physical and the spiritual are intertwined in Jewish theology. In Hebrew, there is no word for spiritual. Everything you are is spiritual. The way you spend your money, the way you eat your breakfast, the way you sit, the way you talk, the way you listen, the way you conduct your business the way you bring up your kids, the way you relate to your friends, the way you approach work, how you handle death. Everything is spiritual. And don't you think it's interesting that in Christian faith, we don't plant a spiritual seed, we plant a physical seed, our bodies. And they give life. They give way to spiritual life. In fact, I would suggest that Jesus says something similar in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you want to sort out the spiritual issue of worry, then think about how you handle money. If you want to sort out your prayer life, think about how you handle discipline. If you want to handle greed, think about being generous. What we do physically changes the way we live spiritually. And we get that wrong all the time. You hear people saying all the time, well, when I get my spiritual life sorted out, I'm going to do this, this, and this. Well, just start to sort your life out. Allow the physical stuff to shape the spiritual stuff. Allow your physical choices about the company that you keep, the conversations that you have, where you go. That shapes us spiritually. And that's why this begins to matter. Because what Paul is saying is that there is something utterly transformational that takes place in us through the resurrection of the body. Greeks and Platoists believed in something called the, the idea of forms. Have you ever heard a story about... Um, oh, you've got another hour. You'll be all right. I need this chair for a minute. Anybody ever um, done a philosophy class? Oh, good. Right, can you all see this? Yes? Right. What is it? Yes. What is it now? 
not a chair. It's a ladder or a step. Um, what is it now? If I was writing on it, what would it be now? A desk. In other words, the physical form takes on the purpose that I attach to it. Stevie Catch. No, I'm only kidding. I am asking you to take it off me, though. Don't sit there with your two arms at one leg. Plato's argument of caves is this, or shadows, is the physical things in our lives take on the, the purpose to which we assign them. So if we decide that something is going to be a chair, it becomes a chair, and we sit on it. If we decide that it's going to be a table, it becomes a table because we lean on it. But it takes on the function of the purpose that we give to it because of our imagination. What Jesus teaches and what the New Testament teaches is that there is a physical connection between who we are made and what we will be that is unbreakable. That's why the physicality of our lives matter. And that's why Christians don't believe that we can do whatever we want to our bodies or to our planet. That's why we don't believe that the soul matters and the body doesn't. They both do. And it's why care is important and the way we live is important and how we treat one another is important. Paul goes on to say remarkably complex and moving and challenging things in this passage about the fact that at the moment we are imperishable, we are perishable, our bodies are wasting away. But in the moment of our resurrection, we become imperishable. They'll never waste away. Peter picks up ideas like that in his letter when he talks about a hope that is undiminished and untainted and undiluted and untarnished. Paul says that at the moment we are mortal, but we will take on immortality. All of that means this. We struggle with death because we weren't made for it. We were made for life. You're supposed to struggle with death. I don't want to go into that any further because I know Pastor Pip is going to pick that all up on Sunday. And if I were you, I'd be here on Sunday morning because it's going to be a cracker of a sermon. The challenge for us, the inspiration for us is that this is all our promise. But more than anything else, at the end of this passage, Paul gets to this wonderful, wonderful crescendo where he says there's coming a moment when death will be swallowed up in victory. When death itself will be swallowed up. When sadness and sorrow themselves will be swallowed up. All because we believe in the resurrection of the body. What are the implications of this? When God made the world, he made it ex nihilo, out of nothing. When he makes the new world, he will make it out of something. And the something that he will use is not only the seed of your body, it is the seed of this planet. The new world that will be sinless and perfect and without sorrow and heartbreak and pain will be crafted from the seed of this world. And there is therefore a continuity between how we handle ourselves now and eternity. And what happens on the planet now and the new heavens and the new earth. The old world will be rolled up like a scroll, but something out of it will be birthed like a phoenix out of the ashes. And if you're facing death, if you're facing operations, if you're facing uncertainty, if your heart is broken, if you're mourning and longing for an answer to whether or not there is life after death, you don't need to go to visit a grave, although there's nothing wrong with it, I do that. You don't need to go and look at a headstone. You don't need to go to a book of remembrance. You need to read 1 Corinthians 15, and the answer is there. Is there something after death? Yes. Why do I know that? Because the one who died came back and rose again and will never die. And his resurrection life is my assurance that I will experience that and the world will experience it. Why does it matter? Because the world around us needs to know this isn't the end of the story. There's more to it than this. It matters because if we really grasped this, we wouldn't be afraid of dying as much. We might hate it, we might resist it. But we wouldn't be conquered by it. We wouldn't be overcome by it. We wouldn't be destroyed by it. We would have the capacity to think differently. I wonder 
what my life will look like in heaven. I wonder if you'd like to live next door to me. I don't know very much about that eternal state. I'm doing a bit of a study on it at the moment. But I know it will be tearless. I know it will be perfect. I said earlier on that one of the wonderful things about this whole resurrection of the body thing is that I do honestly believe that there is a connectivity between who we are now and who we will become and that we will somehow recognize those that have gone before us. Do you remember that? But I said that wasn't the greatest thing. It certainly isn't for me. That's a, that's, that is a secondary thing. The greatest thing is articulated by John in 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, now are we the children of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. <laughs> but when we see him, we shall be like him. I will see him face to face, eyeball to eyeball. The one that died for me, the one that suffered for me, the one that rose again for me, the one that held me through every heartbreak, the one that wiped my tears and lifted me up and chastised me and corrected me and forgave me and caressed me and held me and protected me. I've never seen him, but I'm going to see him. And when I see him, something in me will be like him. Oh, does that not thrill your soul? Does it not do something deep down inside your heart that says, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can with this life to be ready for that moment. See, I hear an awful lot of people preaching about holiness and preaching about discipleship and preaching about following God. And they give you a whole list of things that God doesn't like about you. Oh, you know, it's like he's, it's like he's sitting with a, a wee notebook thing. Oh, you see, you're still doing that terrible thing and that terrible thing and that terrible thing and that terrible thing. And the way they enable you to live a better godly life is with a very big stick. And I think sticks are sometimes important. Not that I've ever hit my children with one. But I do think actions have consequences. However, the New Testament doesn't use that type of metaphor for discipleship. The metaphor for discipleship and transformation and change that the New Testament uses is carrot. Stevie, I know you are an amazing man at the moment, but there's going to come a day when you are perfect and it is not even partially possible. It's absolutely secure. And because we believe that, God reaches back from the future into our present. You will never sit in the front row again. And he grabs us sometimes by the collar and he says, I am going to drag you into the future that I have secured for you. Nothing is going to stop my work in you. You are going to be presented faultless before the throne with exceeding great joy. That's all that Romans 8 says that he's done it, that he has secured it, and our future state impacts our present living by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's not so much whipping you into shape as drawing you into the most remarkable promise. I've tried to think of what analogy I could use for that. And for obvious reasons, I thought of a wedding. A bride or a groom gets ready for their wedding day, right? I know, I've seen them sitting drinking hot chocolate and taking six hours to do their hair. <laughs> and that's the fellas. <laughs> they get ready for something because they're anticipating it. Nobody says, I'll get married tomorrow and I'll just throw something on. They get ready for it because they're looking forward to it. They're planning it, they're prepared for it. It's a great event. That's the kind of motivation that helps us to live godly lives. We are being prepared by God for the most remarkable wedding, and we are the bride. How cool is that? 
And God draws us into it because we believe in resurrection. Because we believe that he will put all things right. Because we believe that he is the one that will perfect and complete everything in us. So why does it matter? Because our whole Christian lives, our whole view of the world and our whole view of the universe hinges upon how we handle this. We don't believe death is the end. We don't believe that spiritual matters and physical doesn't. We don't believe in some kind of discombobulated world. We believe that God will redeem it all and that he will redeem us. Let's worship together.